Hi, welcome back to The CIO Show. I'm David Binning, Associate Editor CIO. Now we're coming up to almost two years, can you believe it, since the first episode of The CIO Show, which was a two-part series discussing how Australian organisations were progressing with artificial intelligence. Suffice to say, the scorecard was less than glowing, with much lower confidence and greater fear than most other developed economies. Fear arising both from perceptions of AI as something super complex and otherworldly, and also from the rising chorus of voices concerned that the machines were coming and jobs, life as we know it was under threat, all amid a seeming torrent of ethical and legal challenges, real and imagined. On the other end of the spectrum, many organisations still viewed AI as some sort of panacea, increasing pressure on tech leaders to deploy solutions that had it written on the tin with inevitable disappointing results. Lack of consultation and buy-in from the C-suite and wider workforce were among many other problems cited as impeding the progress of AI across Australian enterprises. So where are we now and what needs to be done moving forward? Joining me to try and answer this far from simple question, uh, Louise Francis, ANZ Country Manager and Research Director with IDC. Louise, welcome back to the CIO Show. It's great to be here. Thank you, David. Wonderful. And also someone who was on the original, um, the first episode of the CIO Show, Professor Michael Blumenstein. Deputy Research, Deputy Dean Research and Innovation with the University of Technology. Long time, Michael. Welcome back. Thanks, David. Good to be here. And also Michael Ciavarella, former CIO with Swimming Australia, prior to that CIO with Target, and recently returned to retail as the CIO with online fashion retailer ANS Labels. Michael, welcome to the CIO show. Thanks for having me, David. Much appreciated. Now, this is something, Louise, I understand that you've been looking at with you and you and your team at IDC you've been looking at. Can you give us a bit of a, you know, some of the sort of the headlines in terms of how ANZ organisations are progressing with AI at the moment? Yeah, you're, you're definitely right. I think some of the challenges that you just mentioned there are still dogging Australian um, organisations, uh, but there's a lot bigger understanding about how, how artificial intelligence is really becoming critically important um, in the workplace particularly around continuity of operations. And we saw that during the, the pandemic, uh, but also about um, gaining that view of the customer, providing better products and services. Uh, we hear a lot more talk about how it's going to improve operations, but there are still some big challenges that are really holding businesses back. And when we talk to um, businesses across both country, both Australia and New Zealand, we keep hearing about we put all this investment into artificial intelligence, but now we've got our boards or our, our CEOs coming to us and saying, you said that this investment was going to really help our business, um, but I'm not seeing the return on investment. And what's what's holding us back? Why are we not seeing you know, all these big um, outcomes that you said we you promised that we were going to get if we invested in this? And there are a few things that are uh, holding businesses back, and that is many don't have uh, an understanding of what artificial intelligence is. And the view is that artificial intelligence should be a vision and a concept. It's not about having a set of tools and it is about an organizational approach and the change in the culture of the organization. So what we're saying to businesses is don't get hung up on the technology itself. You're going to look at the change that's occurring. You're going to look at what you need to do around the culture. And there's also, you know, you need to embed bias assessment right at the start of the design stages or the exploration stages. 
So those businesses who are doing particularly well started right at the start thinking about how do we assess the bias in our models? How do we embed an ethical use of artificial intelligence into our models? We see businesses that are excellent at artificial intelligence and really starting to gain some great return on investment often have what we call a cross-functional centre of excellence. And they're using this to to manage the usage of artificial intelligence across the organisation, not just in the IT department or the marketing department. And one of the biggest mistakes that businesses tend to do is they see artificial intelligence as what we call a plug-and-play technology. And they expect if they make a massive investment, put it into the organisation, it will just make money. And that's not true. We're not seeing that. It's sometimes the simple solutions that are actually the most effective. So those are just a few things that we're seeing at the moment. There's still a long way to go, but there's a lot more realisation what they need to do. Yeah. Now, and Michael Severella, um, of course, he placed eighth in last year's CAO 50 and largely on the strength of the work that you and your your team did with artificial intelligence in helping the Australian swim team, and particularly the women, have the most successful Olympics ever in Tokyo last year. Can you talk us through, you know, how, how that kind of came about? Because Swimming Australia is not the sort of organisation that you would have immediately associate with being on the sort of cutting edge of technology and being, you know, AI savvy, you know, let alone tech savvy at all, right? Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. Yeah, 100%. I think, Especially now that you've left, yeah. <laughs> I think what was really interesting, um, I joined swimming at a, at a really interesting time and I, I was really fortunate for my time there. It was I, I was with the organisation for two and a half years um, and there's also highs in sport, right? That when, when you're coming up to an Olympic Games, um, the biggest stage essentially on the world for, for sport and specifically for swimming too. Um, th- there's no better milestone to try and have some form of impact there. Um, when I joined um, Swimming Australia at that time, we were very close to signing up uh, Amazon AWS. Uh, we did that within within a few months um, and a lot of that work ha- has nothing to do with me. I was just a recipient of, of obviously um, signing up that, that contract. Um, we, we set up a, a vision to essentially democratise our data and unlock our data. Swimming Australia is a small organisation, but we've got a lot of swimmers across the country within Australia. Um, so our we didn't have a shortage of data, but for us, what was really important was how do we unlock those within the organisations, um, try to remove silos where possible and islands of data. So what we started out with was creation of a data lake. We did that with um, Amazon AWS specifically and, and a couple of their um, other vendors that that helped us um, do that. I think um, as Louise pointed out, what was really important was the organisational cultural impact there. We tried to make this an organisation-wide initiative. So it wasn't something that was technology-led. Our sports science team played a really active role. High performance played an active role. Multiple vendors did. Obviously, technologists did also. Um, all the way to our, our our key CEO at that point in time as well. So, at a very high level, it was all about democratizing data, automating our data feeds, getting a larger sample size, finding out what competitors were doing, and how could we get a competitive advantage on the biggest stage in the globe. Now, really, what what really happened there was the Olympic Games were happening seven months later. Um, COVID impacted us. And the Olympic Games as a whole was moved out by 12 months. So that gave us a lot more time to mature the model, practice it with other events that were taking place. So we're really fortunate. And and as you pointed out, it led to the most historical um, uh, gold medal tally that the Australian swim team has ever had. Now, 
I would say technology and artificial intelligence is one component. Obviously, the athletes are number one, the coaching staff, the sports science team, number two. Um, but just being able to look at the data and get some form of insight from that, I think, was really helpful. Yeah, well, I mean, a couple of other notable things about you know, this this project is that you've got an organisation that, that well, we're not sure exactly how old Swimming Australia is, but they're possibly close to a century old. Um, incredibly old organisation with sort of entrenched manual processes, and you did it on a fairly minimal budget. We did. We did. Yeah. So I think that's all part of working for a non-for-profit organisation too. So Swimming Australia is a federated model, um, which brings its own challenges in terms of structure. Non-for-profit is, is also another. We're very fortunate with the partnership with um, AWS that we formed, but absolutely, we, we were trying to automate a lot of our processes, remove manual work, and do that on a very low budget. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And that's what I love most, to be honest. I, I tend to join organisations where my budget is not big, I've, I worked with Telstra Digital where our budgets were, were significant. And then since then, um, you, know, you probably would have seen over my career journey, I've joined smaller organisations because I like to think outside the square where possible. Um, I don't like having big budgets and then, you know, just using that to essentially just spend the money. Um, I like to think outside the square and see what we can do. And I think in this example, we achieved quite a significant amount. Well, it's quite a statement, Michael, that you don't you don't like working with big budgets. I mean, yeah. <laughs> make you infinitely infinitely employable. I, I mean, and obviously the system was was you know at the end of the day to benefit swimmers, increase their performance. But the people using the system were the coaches, and I understand that they were very very deeply involved in the design process. And that's that's yeah. a point I want to take up with you, uh, Michael Bloomstone. David, I think that's that's a really good point. Everything that Louise has said and Michael have said around. You know, it's not just about the technology, but it's about, you know, the, the problem that's faced by the business or the individuals that want to increase something, whether it's productivity, whether it's performance. Um, and I think, uh, you know, part, from my perspective, I think part of the, the lack of success around AI deployment in Australia is, is well, partly to do with the fact that um, the majority of businesses in Australia are actually small to medium businesses mm. um, and they have, they have challenges, you know, just... Just like uh, Michael was saying, as smaller companies have smaller budgets, and some have zero R and D budget or or technology budget to have an uplift in their in their organisations, and they don't know where to turn, um, and they don't know you know how to how to get things done on a you know really tight budget with with the objectives, and there's also expectations which I don't think are sometimes met. You know, everyone talks about AI as if they know what it is, but yeah. AI is actually really complicated. It's the, the research, you know, as a university person who's been doing it for over 20 years, yeah. um, you know, the, 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 last, the amount of time that AI has been actually in the public sphere is, is a flash in the pan. Yeah. Um, research in AI started in 1943. You know, a lot of people don't even know that, you know. So it's really complicated and it's, it's really difficult when organisations have to simplify, so, or people in the public sphere have to simplify the conversation around AI just to, just to sort of, you know, fit into a box. But uh, the, the problem I see is that also AI, as, for example, provided by vendors in, in, the, in the ecosystem is, is non-customised, you know. It's sort of like off-the-shelf things and the expectation is we're just going to plug that in and it's going to solve problem X. It's very rare that, that will happen. It, you, you do need to talk to the people in the organisation, get the non-technology -tech perspectives, 
you do need to you know talk to 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 the people that are actually running the business that want the improvements in x y and z um but the other thing is just to say you can't just purchase it plug it it's going to work yeah, there uh, and, and it's usually this, the case that then you've got you know vendors going in and and uh, and having to customize things that are at a huge cost to the to the organization if we're talking about small to medium businesses they don't have that so they've started turning to us you know at, at the universities because um universities actually have ai capabilities and have been yeah. doing this for, for decades yeah um you know now we're you know universities in australia if you take the quality of what we do as a whole ranked in per capita in the world we've got the largest output of of research in AI in the world per capita, you know, um, in the, certainly in the top ten, and so so what what that means is that you know we, there, there is another avenue for us to pursue supporting businesses in the ecosystem, you know, yeah. of of industry vendors, um, the, the customer, and of course, so we we have got uh, you know as you probably know David a lot of projects on the go and completed that have um, supported small to medium businesses, SMEs, startups. All the way to large organisations with AI capability. Yeah, well, talk, talk us through some of those projects because it was it was a fascinating conversation we had recently, as it, as it always is with me speaking with you, Michael. But um, yeah, talk, talk us through some of those top projects that we're working on at the moment, and as as you noted, as as a valued ecosystem partner, which is something that Deloitte highlighted in its um, 2021 uh, State of the AI uh, report, the importance of, of businesses having ecosystem partners and of course UTS falls into that category very neatly. Yeah, no, look, so I, I suppose I'd like to highlight um, some, you know, some of the broad areas. Um, you know, we, we look at um, helping everything from large corporates like, for example, well, a company called OnePath, which is an insurer recently purchased by Zurich to actually automate their underwriting process. And it's it's fully automated. We develop, we as in not me personally, but UTS developed the technology underpinning what they needed for their decision making. And the AI uh, was, was totally custom, you know, not available off the shelf, top quality, you know, sort of cutting edge stuff that's still in laboratories, but actually translated into the, their systems. And it actually, uh, you know, really jumped their their productivity the customer satisfaction went up they ended up as i said going from one path to being purchased by one of the largest insurers in the world which is now deploying deploying it globally so that that ecosystem partnership just in that in that small example is is tremendous but we but that was a larger company but also we we, we work with uh, you know state government departments utilities one yes. of our really you know, very impactful projects, I suppose, is with um, the, the water utility, Sydney Water, where basically they have billions of dollars of infrastructure underground, sewer pipes, fresh water pipes, and they need to maintain the technology um, so that it's, you know, it doesn't blow up, um, you know, for, for the many users of that tech, uh, of that infrastructure in, in, in Sydney. So we've developed both robotic and AI solutions to actually scour those those pipes and identify potential problems and maintenance issues before they develop into, into critical issues. And again, the robots have been custom developed, the AI to do the inspection understanding and the analytics of that all totally custom developed. And, you know, it's a perfect example of where, you know, you want to deploy automation, robots and AI uh, in a sewer system where humans don't want to be, you know, so it's a really <laughs> great example of AI for good as well. 
And I just wanted to highlight one last uh, example um, that, that is um, in relation to something that just recently got announced, sort of worldwide press release, was our work with our artificial intelligence researchers with a company called Rejig. So they're a workforce intelligence company, and everyone's heard about the fact that people are trying to you know, use AI for, for HR selection processes, and there's the mm. potential for there to be bias and so forth. Yeah. So what, what our teams have created is, is sort of the, the world-first uh, AI workforce platform that actually has a, a, an ethics assurance framework around it. So it's the it's actually a fully so there are there are frameworks and guidelines all over the world. There's about 200 of them, and everyone thinks that you know well great to have guidelines, but when you need them practically embedded as an independent sort of um, you know sort of auditor of, of what's going on in your systems, that has never been done, and this is something we've done with, with one of our AI teams to, to work with a company to actually ensure that issues of bias, unconscious bias and other things in the automated process of selection is actually fully independently ordered. So I, I think that issue of AI and ethics is, is big. I think Louise mentioned it as well, but it, it shouldn't it shouldn't totally you know, consume everything because that's the other thing I think um, Australia is very much preoccupied with going down the the, the you know line of uh, of ethics and AI, which is important, but it's not everything, because it, you, you've got to get the dials right so that innovation uh, occurs and it's not constricted. But at the same time, you don't want the negative effects occurring. So it's actually a very fine adjustment of getting that right. Yeah. And and I think um, you know that's why again universities can bring that value of understanding of the technical interests to counterbalance the AI and ethical aspects. So uh, it's exciting uh, projects that, that we've worked on, which have actually been consumed and translated into the industry partners' um, enterprise systems. We enable any organisation to use any technology. We help all companies become technology companies, protecting the identity of both workforces and customers. Connecting the right people to the right technology at the right time. Okta, one trusted platform to secure every identity in your organisation. Working to develop an AI-driven system like that in HR, you know, is, is is something of a milestone, really, because in all the conversation, many of the conversations that we're all involved in or or read about over ethics over the last couple of years often re reference the. Uh, the Amazon AI CV debacle, where where women were being um, discriminated against, and then of course you had things like the the Compass parole system in in the US, which which had more sort of cult issues with around cultural bias. I and mean, what are your thoughts on 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 that, Louise? Like back back to this question of ethics, and as Michael has sort of hinted, that you know it is important to get the the levers right, mm -hmm. the dial right, you know. Do, do you think, and Michael and I have talked about this in the past as well, do you think that there's perhaps a little bit of too much anxiety, too much fear around um, the ethical issues um, with deployment of, of AI? Are they, do you think, kind of holding back AI? They can hold back AI, and that's why when I was talking about sort of that enterprise-wide approach and bringing in different, different viewpoints and parts of the business, um, it's you know not just not just AI ethics from a technology point of view, but from a bringing in those stakeholders um, to to get more of a robust view and understanding uh, what 
what it means, good ethics means. You can go overboard, uh, but I don't think it's, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. Um, and we find that Australian companies in particular are um, much more sort of aware of the need to incorporate ethics and transparency and explainability into their artificial intelligence. So, you know, when we look at it from an Australian point of view, it is very much front of mind, which is a good thing. The thing is bringing in the right people in the design stage so it's incorporated. It's when you try to, you you develop an AI solution and then try to slap the ethics on on the top of it, that's when you start to have problems and you start to, you sort of start to get bogged down in the detail and trying to sort of put the, the model into the ethics and it doesn't work that way. It has to be much more organic and and throughout the whole process. I know that's sort of a bit of a, not a precise answer, but it's not, um, I think, you know, as we've just heard, it's not an easy answer, but the fact that that businesses are thinking of it is a good thing. Yeah. And of course, look, I think a lot of private sector organisations are are looking to the public sector. I mean, a couple of episodes back, we did, we spoke with, with Dr Ian Opperman, the Chief Data Scientist with the New South Wales Government about what he's doing with AI and, and AI and ethics in the public service. A number of, of, of his recommendations have now been brought into law in um, certainly in New South Wales around the public sector. And of course we had uh, a couple of days ago, the Labor government um, coming good on its promise to stand up a Royal Commission looking into, into robo-debt, which of course, as we know, that's automation, but not necessarily AI, but of course, as both uh, Michael and, and yourself, Louise, have pointed out, anybody who thinks they know exactly what AI is probably don't, doesn't know a hell of a lot about it at all. Uh, I'm not sure, um, going back to you, Michael Severella, whether, you know, ethics played that that bigger, was sort of on your mind terribly much at, at Swimming Australia, but perhaps it, it might be more so now that you're, you're back in, you know, sort of retail environment. Is, is that a fair, fair statement? Yeah, I think so. I think so. And there's a few um, concepts that Michael and and Louise both mentioned earlier. I think taking an organisational view, looking at this as a cultural change, making sure people are at the heart of what you're doing. Um, The analogy I'll use for swimming specifically is a lot of the coaches in swimming have been professional swimmers themselves. They know breath strokes. They they know the number of strokes. A lot of them have won Olympic medals themselves. Um, so essentially, the, the the coaches, the athletes, the sports scientists are, are essentially the experts. So rather than relying on artificial intelligence, I think about it as augmented intelligence, right? And that's mm-hmm. probably a buzzword as well. But having irrespective of artificial intelligence, augmented intelligence, whenever you embark on a digital initiative or, or a project initiative, from my perspective, I always do my best to try and get the end user or the customer involved from the start. It's no good leading something from a tech perspective. There are some great cutting edge tools, um, but relating that back, I think you have to have the end user involved in everything that you do. And that's something that we did exceptionally well at Swimming Australia. Sports science team, high performance team, technology team, multiple vendors, coaches were all fully aware of what we were doing, provided the inputs, the variables, they knew the data exceptionally well. And ultimately it was a support tool for them. The, the, the coach and the athlete made the final decision. It wasn't the computer or, or the algorithm or the model that was making the final decision. It was there to help complement decision-making. So I'm not sure if that answers your question fully in terms of ethics, but for us, it was about 
encompassing all elements together and not just having a single reliability on 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 the model. David, can I can I just add to that? I, yes. I, I really think Michael's brought up two very pertinent points around the, the human decision maker. Mm. And this is why I'm I'm a little bit of a, a skeptic around uh, the catastrophic version of AI, you know, um, that people keep talking about. Because at the end of the day, there is a lot of work out there in industry that that actually has the human as the final decision maker on most things, you know. So we call it human in the loop. So the sort of work we did, for example, with our shark spotting drones, which were developed UTS, where we've deployed them in multiple states and we're looking for, for sharks, you know, in a, with an automated drone-based technology with video processing and AI built in to, to detect different types of marine life and then highlighting the shark. Um, at the end of the day, you know, no one's going to let the AI make that final decision and say, there's a shark there, you better get out of the water or, um, you, know, you know, do something about that. Um, so that we actually work really closely with the lifesavers and lifeguards that were operating on the beaches. They were actually controlling the drones. The AI was working automatically, but it, it was giving them recommendations and they made that final decision. And, and that second point that Mike was saying about, and I think Louise has mentioned as well, about working with the, with the end user, working with the people that are actually running the business or, the, or whatever it is, that's super important because, and that's, it just struck me that, you know, when we talked about that ecosystem, David, around universities being involved in, in the discussion, I think really where people where this where the problem lies is that sometimes these pre-made models or or systems, and I'm not you know not picking on the vendors, but there are pre-created things that are, are, are the models which are then you know imposed upon a business potentially. The difference when you when we actually do a customized product through the university is that we actually sit there and do it almost from scratch, and and that's why everyone's involved at the beginning. We never have a situation where we're trying to you know. You know, deconstruct the model because we didn't incorporate the right level of um, AI ethics elements or didn't incorporate the feedback from users because we've we've started from the beginning and, and trying to trying to create something that's actually very customized for the end user. So so I think that that might be just something to consider. The um the, the pre-done off-the-shelf models might actually be part of the problem in in uh, in sort of you know retrofitting into organizations when when sometimes you just need that really customized approach. And I know that that the, the, the customer consultation does happen even with those, with those you know, off-the-shelf models, but I'm also aware that, you know, people want to sell kit to companies, you know, and they, they're, try, they're, they're salespeople mm -hmm. and they just want to get things out the door. But you really need to keep in mind what the organization actually needs rather than just what's, you know, promoted there in a sales tactic. Yeah, well, look, as, as Australia is arguably Australia's worst surfer, I appreciate all efforts to uh, improve the um, the surveillance of sharks because if anyone get, deserves to get eaten by one, it's me on the surfboard. <laughs> that that point about human-centred design is interesting, isn't it? Because it's it's difficult for it would be difficult for an organisation or or a tech team to have AI si siloed within IT if they indeed do commit to having proper human-centred design, right? So it brings it it brings it out to the organisation by default if you had if you're genuinely committed to that, right? What are your uh, thoughts on that, Louise? Yeah, I, I definitely agree. And it's it, it keeps coming back to, you know, we keep talking about this from a human design perspective. And I think that's where we're going to see some, some really good results, at, you know, the use of artificial intelligence. I, I know there are a lot of applications, but, you know, when we look at the skill shortage, for example, we see, you know, there's about 
25% of Australian organisations say one of the things that's holding them back is the skill shortage. Yeah. You know, they, they don't have the capabilities for this technology. But I think it goes much broader than that because we are talking about human-centred design. So we're not, we're not, when we talk about the skill shortage, we're not thinking about social psychology or, you know, the, the end users themselves. Uh, we're not talking about how artificial intelligence has been used in an inclusive way. Um, so I think there are a lot of skills that are not captured in that 25%. When you look at it, all the, the things that are going to go into creating this human-centered design, I think it's broader than that. Um, so I think it's going to be a real challenge for a lot of businesses as they try to sort of grapple with this. Do you think, guys, I mean, if anyone feel free to jump in here, that in situations where organisations have a genuine commitment to um, running AI projects across the organisation, human-centred, as, as Michael Cerverell, as you've noted, you know, having the coaches intimately involved in the design of the system, could that possibly alleviate some of this tension with skills if you have more people across the organisation involved in the project more broadly? It's a bit of a long bow, I suppose. What do you think, Michael Blumenstein? Yeah, look, I mean, it's really interesting that the skills questions come up because it's at the heart of what universities are doing in terms of actually bringing out the talent into the industry. Um, you know, we... we our, I think I would not be the only university that, a representative that would say this, but computer science has just blown up as a, as a hot area for people to enrol in. And yet technology companies still can't get enough of them. And that's interesting, isn't it? Because you, you've made the point, David, that maybe there should be a breadth of skill that looks at this AI issue, just as, we've, just as Louise identified around having different types of people, not just technologists in, in the problem. Uh, or, or, or addressing the problem, you know, on an organisational level or a departmental level. Uh, but yet the perception is that, you know, that the drive for skills is actually in the technology space because that's exactly what's reflected in our faculty. I mean, it's, it's a huge blip of the, the interest from, you know, domestic undergraduate students coming in that really want to study computing science. And, and that includes AI, includes data science, includes cybersecurity, includes all those things. But, you know, we're getting feedback from companies that just cannot get enough technologists. So I think we, we should address the technology shortage because that's a big issue. And uh, we're trying to do a few things at the university to try and work much more closely with industry to get that pipeline growing. But you point out the right thing in that we, we should actually be looking at the breadth of skills around this issue that doesn't just incorporate the technology. And I, we've been doing that to some extent because we have now short courses on AI and ethics, for example. Um, we've got short courses around, you know, the, the other elements around, you know, technology and technology success in organisations, which, which students are exposed to. And I think that is going to keep growing as AI proliferates in the, in the, um, in, in the sector. So I think, you know, it's, the skills question is a really important one and we should certainly focus on it as a nation. And, and Michael Severello, what was your experience in terms of finding enough you know, tech people and data scientists with your initiative at Swimming Australia. Yeah, I think I think we were fortunate because we, we partnered up with multiple vendors that that, that had a strong skill set in that domain. But but for me, I think whenever you embark on any project or any digital initiative specifically, I think having the end user involved is absolutely critical. And, and for me, what actually happens is you get their feedback early in the process. I, I'm a massive believer of agility. I've worked in projects that have had a significant amount of funding and I've worked in projects that have a, a low number of um, dollars made available to them. 
if I use the example of Swimming Australia, Swimming Australia operates in a federated model. They're the, they're the national body. Underneath the national body are the state bodies. Then there's regions, then there's clubs. And then underneath that is the parent or the end user, the young child that's swimming in a swimming pool. When you're building, Swimming Australia was building membership systems for, for essentially the swimmers, but they're, they're removed from that swimmer by a hierarchy of four or five. For me, it was actually how much effort does it take to go to the club to actually talk to the volunteer, to talk to the to talk to the parents about their expectations on what they would like in a membership system. Um, in the case of artificial intelligence and what we did for the swimmers, talk to the coaches, talk to the athletes, talk to the sports scientists. Don't build things in isolation. We built we built multi, we built multiple things in Swimming Australia, and I was very fortunate to be part of um, what I would refer to as a fairly large transformation in our live streaming initiative. Uh, we were impacted by COVID. People couldn't visit a local swimming pool, so we we built a, a live streaming capability from scratch, which involved our events team. Now, our events team had never really been involved in many technology-oriented projects, but we brought the concepts around product ownership, user experience, prototyping, trying things. Uh, before you know it, I think within four or five months, they're like, I actually really like this product ownership. How do I become a product owner? How do I join technology? How do I find out a little bit more? I think so relating that back to skills shortages, from my perspective, talk to the customer, involve them as early as you can. I, I think it's fairly logical, but often forgotten. Don't get caught up too much in the cutting edge tools and building and coding things, finishing it in six months time and then ship it out because often the world has changed in that six months. Even if you built something perfectly, the world is just changing too fast. So I, I honestly believe that perfection doesn't exist. By the time you get close to it, the world's already moved. So you know, incremental work, minimal viable product, all the agile terms that you will hear but I think having the user at the core of what you do is important. And then I actually think that helps alleviate some of the skill shortages because the users actually end up getting involved in it. Another thing that, that I led at Swimming Australia was actually to get as much as possible to get our organization certified in understanding business essentials in, in AWS. So we, we've got a partnership with AWS at Swimming Australia. We want to understand the terminology, right? Irrespective of whether you're a technologist or not, it would help an athlete to understand what does a machine, what does machine learning mean? What does artificial intelligence mean? What does a server actually do? What does compute mean? And I think if you start to talk about the same terminology, it's easier to, to progress things along the way rather than it being a, a cutting edge tool or a fancy tool. So for me, it was actually about embracing technology, making sure it wasn't just something that happened in the tech department. It was widespread across the organization. And then how do we keep coaches informed, athletes informed, volunteers. It's very rare for someone to say, no, I don't want additional training or no, I'm not interested in finding out about that. And I think just based on credentials, a lot of technologists are in a very fortunate position at the moment. So if you're not a technologist, you're still probably playing around with a smartphone or or on social media. I think um, a lot of the world is revolving around some form of technology. So those that are, that are young enough and fortunate enough, and, and they're a bit younger than me, to be to be born digital, where, where the internet already existed and, and have had all these tools at their hand, I think a lot of them are in a fortunate position. And those that that, that may not have had that, um, I think are genuinely interested in understanding a little bit more about tech. Yeah, sure. Look, a, a final point that I just want to throw out to everybody, and it's and it's picking up on something that you said earlier, Louise, and it's 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 so it's so important, it seems to be neglected, is not that organizations need to have, and we're talking about when I mean organizations, we're talking about the executive suite, the, the bean counters, for instance, not about asking them to have low expectations when it comes to AI, 
but having the right expectations. And something that you mentioned, Louise, that you know a, a lot of a lot of tech teams are, are finding that the you know the CEOs are coming to you and saying, look, we we made this investment. Where where are the returns? Yeah, I, I, I agree. And I, I think it, what it boils down to, you know, sometimes you just have to go back to basics. Businesses are looking for consistency. It's all very well saying that artificial intelligence is going to produce all these great results. But if you you say to you say to the decision makers or the investors, you say, um, this is, you know, we're looking for consistency. We're looking for consistent customer experience. We're looking for consistent, taking those sort of those dips and those um, troughs out of operations and downtime. Those are the sorts of results that businesses are looking for because that's what keeps businesses going. Um, so I think when we talk to businesses, we say, focus on the basics first, get, get that right, and the investment will follow. Uh, I know it's very simplistic, but... Just getting the, the the being able to go to a CEO or a board and say, um, you know, we, we haven't experienced um, the, those big challenges that we faced before, and that that's a result of this artificial intelligence investment. They get that, uh, so that needs to be the focus more. I think. Mm. And I would say, David, if I could just add to what Louise was saying, is that one challenge around boards in in Australia. Uh, which is not common um, with other countries around the world, is that the composition of people that understand technology, even to the extent that they, you know, not, not little enough to be dangerous, but enough to actually understand what it'll actually do. And, and, and you know, that that is a problem. We've got the lowest participation of, of, of board members that have any STEM skills um, uh, in, in Australia, which is, which is really um, a shame. Because, you know, the, when someone, as I said at the very start, when someone, when talks about AI, you know, people conjure up all sorts of things in their mind, and and it's it's not about AI is going to be the solution to everything. Um, there 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 is you know targeted efforts to to in, enhance and improve X, Y, and Z in the company, and that needs to be properly explained. What AI can do needs to be properly explained yeah. um, at the board. The, the assumption shouldn't be there that boards uh, and CEOs know what the capabilities will actually do for their business. Um, it, I think there there needs to be training. We found that in our university, we're doing training for boards and businesses because we've just realised that that there is a misinformation out there around what actually AI is and what its it, its function is in in, in corporations. So it, it, there's a huge uptake of 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 this skills and training just in that. And I think you know the expectations piece is extremely important mm-hmm. you you've really got to give the right expectations to what is what can be done what is possible and and what the cost will be because everyone wants a return investment but um if there is if there's a lack of co- connection as to what you know can actually be delivered with some of this technology it's it's you know it's fraught with danger and 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 people just go back and and use the old you know you know complaint around the technology department that we spend so much money on it and and we, we we don't see the benefit. Um, we need to clearly articulate that benefit and and enhance the understanding. Yeah, and and Michael Severella, I mean that sounds like exactly the challenge that you faced. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, I would agree with that. Yeah, absolutely. 
I think, again, from an investment perspective for us, it's all about starting small, managing expectations with artificial intelligence and machine learning. The analogy that I often use is the day that you go live is probably the worst day that it's going to be, right? Because that's the day that the, that the model's out in the real world. So we were trialing the model not at the Olympic Games initially. We were trialing in, in much smaller events, right? It's like, it's like a, um, a young junior starting grade prep on day one, they're not going to understand all the concepts, right? And all the terminology. So that's the analogy that I try to use. But once they've been in the school system for six months, nine months, 12 months, then it becomes a lot more normal. And you'll always expect what you believe are the common questions that customers will ask. You'll never, you'll never know that until you actually put it out there in the wild. That's from my perspective anyway. And I think once you start to manage those expectations with board of directors, et cetera, I think the, the level of understanding will start to um, mature. Uh, we showcased regularly. The model wasn't perfect day one, but we compared it to historical analysis. What was the model doing in comparison to actual results? And over time, it became more and more accurate. And I think just, just using Michael's example in terms of board of directors and just um, technology awareness, he's a, he's a first for the show. I've recently just been appointed, so I'm, I'm going to remain in sport, but I've just recently been appointed for Volleyball Victoria um, on their board of directors. Oh. And, and oh. I look at, and I've looked at the composition of, of, of the board and uh, absolutely amazing to have an opportunity to be on that board, but I was specifically looked at based on my experience across digital and technology. Now, I know very little about volleyball and, and that's not my role, but if I can provide some input with technology and digital, then that's great. But I also think technologists need to look at themselves and say, well, how do we get a better understanding of business too? So there's no doubt that I'm going to get a better understanding of business. And then hopefully the um, intel that I might be able to pass on is a little bit about projects, risks, security, technology, and digital, which I just think is a large part of every organization today. But yeah, totally agree with Louise and, and, and Michael's comments before on um, confidence, investment, expectations, and then obviously a board of directors and, and different compositions. Yeah, well, look, there certainly has been a lot of positive improvement in the two years since we first spoke about this on the CIO show, but it's interesting too that so many of the, of the problems that we identified back then uh, remain. Let's see where we're at in the next two years. Thanks everyone for, for a wonderful conversation in Look forward to having you all back on the CIO show again soon. Thanks, Thank David. You. Thank you, David. Much appreciated. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it. Coming up next, we'll be talking to CIOs and industry experts on the recent changes made to Australia's Privacy Act. Now, the internet and social media have changed the privacy and security landscape in Australia. What organisations and their tech leaders now need to be doing and thinking differently to meet with the new obligations. We hope you can join us.